Hey guys, welcome back. So this week, continuing on our special COVID-19 series, part four, we're looking at an issue a little close to home, specifically in my home state, Washington state. Now, even though this happened more on a local level, it deals with a lot of issues that we have to be aware of, that we have to know what's going on. Things like firearms and domestic violence, things like how survivors interact with the legal system, what kind of challenges and barriers are there when survivors seek protections, especially during COVID-19, when we're practicing social distancing, certain things are closed, everything's chaos, and as we know from past episodes, Domestic violence is skyrocketing. All resources are dwindling. Okay, here's some background information. About a month ago, Governor Jay Inslee released Proclamation 45. It was aimed at people looking to file what's known as ex parte extreme protection orders. So essentially, if you are someone who has been the target of harassment, if you are a domestic violence survivor, or if you are a vulnerable adult, and you've been threatened with a gun by an abuser and harasser. You go to the courts, you say, I want to file for this order. You show the evidence, and if the evidence is there, they will set a hearing date within 14 days. They will tell the respondent, aka the person who's doing the threatening and doing the abusing, they'll take away their guns, and then at the court hearing, again, 14 days later, they will decide if they need to give them this protection order. And it lasts a year from that date, essentially. Now, during the time of COVID-19, courthouses are closed. So what Proclamation 45 did was it said survivors can file for them online. And respondents, again, the abusers, harassers, assholes, can be served electronically as well. So no one has to do it in person, including the police who serve the warrants. And it also means that instead of going to the courthouse for the hearing 14 days later, you can have it over Zoom or over teleconference, whatever they set up, whatever's easier for everyone. It also means the 14 day timeline for the court hearing is a bit more flexible. So for example, if you're in the middle of a Zoom court hearing and your power dies for whatever reason, you don't have to start over and refile and go through the whole process again. They just say, okay, we'll reconvene on day 15 or 16. Basically, Proclamation 45 was enacted to lower any kind of barriers that COVID-19 put in place for survivors. And let's remember here, we're talking about guns and survivors. And as we know from part two of our COVID-19 series, having a gun in a household where there is domestic violence increases the risk for fatality by 500%. If you want more details, please go back and have a listen. Part two of our COVID-19 series. Anyways, about two weeks ago, Proclamation 45 was set to expire. It was an emergency proclamation, so it only lasts 30 days from the time it's enacted. And instead of our state renewing it and extending it, it was denied. It expired. 
So what happens now? Well, I'm not a politician and I'm not a lawyer, but I know someone who is. Hey, my name is Manka Tingra. I'm the state senator representing the 45th Legislative District, which is the King County parts of uh, the city of Woodenville, parts of the city of Redmond, Kirkland, Sammamish, and Duval. I am also the deputy majority leader in the Senate, and I chair the Behavioral Health Subcommittee. I am vice chair of Law and Justice Committee. I sit on Health Care and the Ways and Means Committee. I'm truly honored to be here today uh, with all of you and having this really important discussion. I want to begin with something that has made a lot of news locally, which is Proclamation 2045. Can you give a brief description of what that is? Absolutely. Um, you know, in the time of COVID, because we have an emergency that, that is declared statewide, the governor can actually issue proclamations that um, for 30 days, he can suspend certain rules and regulations due to the emergency. So the proclamation that we're talking about today is one that he had issued uh, over a month ago that basically eases uh, three restrictions uh, in specifically. One, and they're all in terms of uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, and protecting um, victims of uh, violence, basically. And so the first one as part of this proclamation is that um, victims are allowed to file online instead of doing it in person. The second is about uh, the service of that petition. We still live in a period where we have the rule that you have to provide someone service in person. And this one says that you can have service in um, other means. And the third is uh, removing the restriction that says you have to have a hearing within uh, 14 days. And so those are the three restrictions that were removed. I will add that the Supreme Court has court rules that are um, targeted towards the pandemic to then talk about what due process requires and when courts have to schedule hearings. And this is of course done to accommodate the court closures. They're doing limited hearings, they're doing telephonic hearings and video hearings. So this proclamation creates um, a local control for those jurisdictions to be able to continue to provide services and protections for the most vulnerable in our population. It's a great proclamation. And I assume because it's needed in this time with domestic violence on the rise that it was extended, obviously, correct? Well, so the governor under his emergency powers can only have the proclamation for 30 days. The only way to then continue that extension is actually by agreement of the legislature. So it can be done by a letter that all the four corners sign in agreement and the four corners would be the Senate majority leader, um, the Senate minority leader, the Democrat, uh, the uh, House um, uh, leader, and then the House minority leader. And this is the checks and balances that exist in our state to make sure that someone is checking the authority of the governor. So this was uh, in regards to the extension and the Republicans, both in the House and the Senate refused to extend this proclamation so that we could continue past 30 days. And unfortunately, these emergency uh, rules expired um, last Sunday. And that's why we're here today. Uh, 
you know, I'll tell you right off the bat, in today's day and age, requiring personal service just makes no sense. We file our taxes online, we get accepted to college online, we vote by mail, and um, especially during this emergency, saying that officers have to put themselves in danger by going to someone's house, being exposed to who knows what, in order to give someone a piece of paper. There's nothing magical about handing someone a piece of paper in person. The same can be done electronically via mail. And we have, technology has evolved where we know when someone received an email or received an attachment, or even whether the mail has been delivered to their house. So there are enough protections that this really is something that should have been extended. I've heard from multiple local officers working for Redmond PD that domestic violence calls are some of the most dangerous for officers. It seems that this proclamation would actually extend protections to police as well as survivors. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of just being infected with COVID, uh, just domestic violence calls overall are the most uh, dangerous calls that our law enforcement officers respond to because they're going into a very volatile situation where tempers are really high and um, and anytime if there's a weapon involved in those situations if there's a gun involved the lethality rate for women especially goes up 500 times so these are absolutely very very dangerous situations and we have seen since COVID hit that uh, there has been over a 20% increase in domestic violence statewide. And in King County itself, we've had a few homicides um, uh, in this regard. So this really is something that is real. It is uh, happening around us and um, not extending this proclamation has real life safety concerns for victims as well as our law enforcement officers. What do you expect these consequences to look like? Now that this proclamation has expired, what situations are survivors finding themselves in? I think it's very challenging, first of all, for them to uh, file electronically. Um, they're going to have to try to figure out how to go in person to do that. It's going to be very challenging to find someone to serve um, these papers to their abusers. Law enforcement officers are stretched as it is because we do have um, individuals who, because of exposure or are in either quarantine or isolation, so we have fewer law enforcement officers and requiring them to go uh, door to door to search uh, to serve someone is going to be challenging. And then frankly, there's a lot of um, courthouses and courtrooms where I don't know if they can comply with the normal requirement for a hearing given that they're not having regular hearings. This is going to be especially problematic in our rural areas and the less populated areas where access to the courts uh, is a problem. Given the uh, coverage that this proclamation has um, had, I think the message that victims are getting is that they're not important. And I think that stigmatizes domestic violence even more. And uh, this is absolutely the wrong direction to be going, especially in these times. Asking a survivor to file for a protection order in person, does that make it more difficult for them? What sort of barriers does that place for them when they're seeking protection? Not even in COVID-19, but in all situations. You know, a lot of people, when you say domestic violence, they think of a physical assault. But you know, domestic violence is a lot about power and control. 
And when you're talking about power and control, it has physical manifestations, and that is the physical abuse and the hitting that we see. But there is that larger concept of the power and control that the abuser has over the victim. And so for years, we would, you know, people would ask the question, well, why doesn't she just leave? And um, I think in society, we have now reached the point where people understand why someone doesn't leave these situations. And so when we're looking at the power and control issue, it's a lot harder for someone, especially during this time, to be able to leave the house, to go to a courthouse, to seek this help, to go for a hearing. And so the, that concept of actually leaving takes on multiple formats during this emergency because it's the power and control plus the physical act of leaving uh, to go get help because we are at a stay home order and so people have to be very clear as to why they're leaving the house. Earlier, you could maybe go pick up the kids and stop by the courthouse or before or after when you're running your errands, you could um, go and get help. But right now, when movements are really constrained, people know when you leave the house where you're going. Um, and frankly, in today's day and age with um, courthouses being closed the way they are, it's unclear when someone may be available. So accessing resources, is, it's getting harder. Though I do wanna to say to anyone who wants to help um, survivors of domestic violence, that please do reach out. There are advocates who are working telephonically. They've tried to move their services online as much as possible, but it does add another barrier that really we don't need to have in this arena. What were some of the issues the state Republicans had with this proclamation? Why not vote to extend it? You know, I haven't really heard very clearly from them specifically what the issues were. I heard vague things about, oh, due process, and, you know, we don't want uh, people losing their guns. But um, the due process claims have been dealt with by the Supreme Court. I mean, all cases, criminal and civil, have different rules now because of COVID. And... Um, the courts are dealing with it. So this is not different than any other of uh, the criminal and civil matters that are being held. Um, in terms of the concern about weapons, we do know that the lethality is so high when, the when a weapon is involved in a domestic violence situation. And so to me, that is just not something that makes any logical sense you do want to make sure that if there's a domestic violence situation that the abuser does not have access to a firearm. And that's all I have heard. I have not uh, been engaged by any, with any dialogue from the Republican side on this. And you know, when you have your uh, statewide law enforcement agency, when you have your statewide prosecutors association doing a joint letter in support of extending this proclamation, and you have the Supreme Court in agreement with this, I am really not quite sure what the objections are because it's not one that is based in reality. I reached out to head Republican Mark Wander's office, including his attorney, and I did some digging. Their concern is mostly with the ex parte ruling, so dealing with abusers losing their guns. Reading the language of the proclamation, uh, it appears that if a survivor were to go to court or appeal to a court and they ruled there was sufficient evidence to give the order, then they could that day come and take away the guns and serve the order. Is that correct so far? That is correct. That is what an ex parte hearing is, and that is allowed actually 
under normal circumstances as well when you have ex parte hearing in terms of emergencies. Okay, thank you. So then the issue that they were explaining to me was that they are worried that because the 14 day hearing uh, rules are now gone, that the trial could lapse indefinitely, leaving uh, people who have been served this order without a date to find out if their weapons will be removed for the one year period or indefinitely. Well, this is where we have checks and balances in our state, and this is where the Supreme Court comes into place with court rules. So while I understand that is the statutory component of it, there's a court rules component with it too. And so this is um, why I go back to really being able to understand what happens in real terms. We make changes um, in language, but there's the implementation component. We have defense attorneys, we have prosecutors, we have law enforcement, we have judges. They are doing what they need to do and they're doing it through court rule. So um, this um, analysis that they've come up with actually does not hold water in real life because people are still abiding by the court rules that the Supreme Court has enacted during this emergency to make sure that people's due process rights are protected. So why is there a need then in the language of the proclamation to scratch out the 14-day timeline? Because if we don't scratch out the 14-day timeline, then the court rules cannot create flexibility. So they cannot say something like, oh, instead of 14 day, maybe you get 20 days. Uh, maybe if the court hearings are uh, every, you know, once a month in certain jurisdictions, that it can't be three weeks. So striking the 14-day gives local jurisdictions the flexibility to accommodate hearings as and when they need to based on what is going on in that area. And during a time of crisis like this, that is something that is acceptable, and especially when it comes to protecting individuals who, whose life um, and safety is at stake, this definitely is something that is extremely appropriate. And that is why we have the Supreme Court that is in agreement and supporting of this idea. So what you're saying is the Supreme Court will come down if they see a case going on indefinitely. They won't let it hang out there for months or years. They have court rules, actually, because the Supreme Court determines what the court rules are, not the statute. And they have court rules that require uh, hearings within certain um, time frame, and they've created flexibility around there. So yes, there is oversight over this process, and that oversight comes from individuals who are doing the work and other professionals in this field. Is there any historical precedent to suggest that there could be a case that lapsed indefinitely, that they maybe are thinking of when they're thinking of this? I'm sure there are enough lawyers who would be jumping up and down and filing that as soon as there is any extension on any time limit. Uh, that is the beauty of the system. You have people on both sides advocating. So um, there's a, this, this, is a, this is the difference on what happens with elected officials who do not uh, necessarily have the expertise or the history of uh, doing the actual work. What I did mention in my introduction is actually I've been a senior deputy prosecuting attorney with King County for close to two decades. Um, and so this is something that I'm very familiar with. I have helped uh, survivors get protection orders, I've prosecuted domestic violence cases, and uh, the reality is very different than the narrative that is being uh, uh, said so from the Republicans. And, you know, 
talk about the people who are supporting this proclamation. Other than the Republicans, I haven't heard anyone else who is opposing the extension of this um, proclamation. They have an issue also with confidence in the process. I believe that they, at least from what they have described to me, are worried about people receiving notices correctly. They're worried um, about the system breaking down because everything won't be in person. I believe their term was like, was like confidence in officials. And they're also worried about people on both sides, respondents and the survivors, not receiving their due process. We vote by mail in the state. We file our taxes. We receive our checks electronically. In today's day and age, not having confidence in the ability to do anything electronically is, is just, it, it's just nonsense. It makes zero sense to anyone who is listening right now. Our lives have gone completely online now. Um, there is absolutely nothing based in reality that says you cannot have confidence in electronic service. And it sounds like from what you were saying earlier, this current pandemic um, with the old system will actually make it more difficult for survivors to receive justice because of, because going in person is a lot more difficult. So what sort of rationale would there be to blocking this proclamation extension? I actually don't know about any rationale. Uh, and unfortunately, this just feeds into um, the reputation that the Republican Party has now developed in terms of the way they view women and protecting women. It's really, really unfortunate. But I cannot fathom any rational reason for why they would be against this proclamation when there are checks and balances in place. And this is done very, very specifically during uh, this time uh, of the pandemic. I will say though, that when this um, proclamation went into place and especially uh, King County came up with the electronic filing and the processes in place, um, the Center for Court Innovation, which is a national organization actually reached out and they're really looking at what is being done in Washington as a, as a model nationally uh, moving forward to help protect um, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. So this is not the end of the conversation. This, in fact, actually may be a new normal where we are, we do have the ability to file things online, to do electronic services, because we have to keep up with the times. What happens next? Proclamation 45 has been blocked. Is that the end? Or are there efforts being made to reinstate it or to find a way around it? I think there are definitely efforts being made, and I know that there are calls and emails uh, going to Republican leadership to uh, ask that they change their mind and actually agree to um, the extension. And I think this is where all your listeners can act. And I don't think it just has to be Republican leadership. I think all Republican uh, House members and Senate members should be contacted and told that this really is unconscionable. And so anyone who is a Republican elected leader who is advocating for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, I think they should take it upon themselves to reach out to their leaders and say that they agree in extending the proclamation. It is completely unconscionable that this is what they have decided they're going to object to given all the emergency proclamations that we have in front of us today. My impression based on all my readings and 
speaking with the Republicans, I was able to is that, that they're prioritizing gun ownership over survivors because their main concern is with the ex parte hearings and that along with extreme protection orders that people will get their guns taken away and then in time will just lapse without them getting their guns back. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, and I think that a lot of what I have heard is also the prioritization about people owning guns over protecting survivors. And ex parte hearings have been a part of our jurisprudence for decades. This is not a new concept. So um, for them to highlight gun ownership when it comes to protecting survivors of domestic violence makes no sense because we do know that's the high, highest lethality rate for everyone involved. We know that when guns are present in a domestic violence situation, there are no real good outcomes that come from it. So to stand up for gun rights when it comes to domestic violence is absolutely the wrong um, side to be on. We have excellent, responsible gun owners. And I think that makes sense when you are a responsible gun owner that you have make sure those people's rights are protected. But to take a stand when you are putting, um, especially women and children's lives at risk, it's completely the wrong thing to do. The story doesn't end there. A few days after this conversation, I got an email saying, the Republicans agreed to an extension, slightly amended, which was a bit terrifying, but also thrilling. So, what happened? Last time we left off, we were at the stalemate where Proclamation 45 had been it felt to be extended. So what changed in the past few days? Yeah, I think this is where really advocates have stepped up. Um, we had law enforcement, prosecutors, advocacy groups, uh, everyday people really make an effort to reach out to the Republicans and tell them uh, how important this was and how uh, we really needed to address um, survivors and help them. And so since then, the Republicans did agree to a modified version of the proclamation. So our state Supreme Court did have court rules that allow for um, electronic or other methods of conducting a hearing. So that, that was in place. And uh, the Republicans agreed to allow for uh, other than in-person service so that when someone files for protection order, they can now do it through electronic means. That order, when it is first um, granted, can then be served on the on the respondent, the individual who is supposed to um, stay away from the survivor, can be done by electronic means. And this was very, very um, crucial for law enforcement, because as we all know that domestic violence uh, calls are some of the most dangerous for law enforcement, especially now with COVID, they had no idea what they would be walking into. We've also had uh, law enforcement personnel who have been out because of COVID. And so this was something that was very important to them to make sure that the personal service, um, there was an exception to that in the proclamation. So that was signed. The one part that the Republicans did not agree to, um, which concerns me a little bit, is that they didn't agree to extend the 14 day for the hearing. 
And um, given what's going on with COVID, we don't have regular court hearings. And so um, under the rules established by the state Supreme Court, they were allowed to have those hearings on day 15 or 16 if needed. And with um, the Republicans not agreeing to that extension and making a very hard and fast 14 day, and there's nothing magical about 14 day. I mean, your due process rights aren't automatically um, found to be unconstitutional because it's 15 day, not 14. The only reason it's 14 is because a statute says it's 14. So unfortunately, um, because the 14 day is not extended, it will mean that survivors, mostly in rural areas or areas in smaller counties that don't have access to um, a lot of court hearings may not be able to um, get that order right away. They may have to apply for a second one. So there are hurdles that a few survivors will have to uh, face because of this. The earlier proclamation actually made sure that all survivors would get the help that they needed. Here now, unfortunately, while the vast majority of them will still have, the, have services available to them, there are a few that are going to fall through the cracks because uh, this one um, part of the statute wasn't allowed to be um, extended. Can you explain why survivors in rural areas will face more challenges now that the 14-day timeline has been early, I guess, put in place? So um, all courtrooms obviously are not uh, operational. Uh, there are some uh, courts that have the possibility of having a hearing once a week. Some are doing twice a week. And those hearings are available, you know, depending on the resources each county has. So as, um, as rural counties and poor counties who may not have the technical infrastructure or the, um, the policies in place to be able to have hearings in uh, different modalities, those are the people who will be most impacted by uh, the hard and fast 14-day rule. I actually heard from one of the prosecutors who said that uh, at the time of this telephonic hearing, there were some technical problems and one of the parties couldn't connect and uh, they had to cancel the hearing. And so then they ended up having the hearing on day 16 and she was able to get her protection order mm -hmm. because that was allowed under the emergency proclamations. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a technical glitch or there's any kind of problem or if your internet's not working or your power goes off, once you can't have that hearing, there's no potential of extending it out uh, because of these reasons, that survivor will have to go and start the process all over again. And the chances are that it's these same communities that have uh, fewer resources for survivors. So it's unfortunate that we cannot help all of the survivors, but this is definitely better than uh, where we were a few days ago. One of the original issues the Republicans had was what happens after 30 days? Because right now we're in phase one, about to enter phase two, then phase three. How will this look going forward as we begin to reopen the state gradually? You know, as uh, these proclamations only are in place as long as there's an emergency. When there is no longer an emergency, we go back to business as usual. However, um, 
you know, we have actually learned a lot on efficiencies in the system that we can actually capitalize on moving forward. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in our next legislative session in January, because a lot of this model of doing electronic filing and um, having different kinds of services, we are looking, you know, states across the country are looking at the state of Washington as maybe having this as uh, best practices moving forward to remove barriers for survivors to access services. So um, while we go back to life as we know it when we no longer have an emergency, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to change the way our criminal justice system interfaces with survivors. But we saw a lot of backlash from Republicans. They were talking about um, how there was a lack of confidence in these systems. So going forward, if we want to implement them permanently, how much of a challenge would that be for you? You know, when we are in regular uh, session, we can have hearings from um, hearings in our regular committees, really hear from people who have been doing this work and uh, making sure that all of those, uh, all of that is taken into consideration. And um, during this time, we were limited to having the uh, four leaders agree. So I think uh, there would be Republicans who would be interested in, um, you know, following my lead in making these changes. When we had advocates reaching out to members, uh, as well as law enforcement and prosecutors, some of the feedback I got from them uh, was that there were a few that were possibly interested in the extension or may have agreed to the extension. However, leadership wasn't interested in doing it. So I think once we're in regular session, there is opportunity for us to make improvements in the system. So this expires on June 5th. To quote them, there was a lack of confidence in using electronic methods. What's changed from then to now? I don't think there has been any um, issues in real life in using uh, technology. Uh, people have been able to work out uh, issues around that. We have, we file our taxes through technology. We do our college applications through technology. Our entire life revolves around technology. And there is uh, no basis in saying that they don't have faith in uh, technology in order to make sure criminal justice system works. Originally, they had an issue because of the 14 day timeline, but you mentioned that it was an arbitrary number. So why were they so married to this number, this 14 days? The 14 days in, is in our statute. So in the state of Washington, you have to have that hearing in 14 days. Because of the emergency, the governor had said, uh, gotten rid of the 14 days. And uh, what had been happening is the vast majority of people were still having those hearings within 14 days, but there were a few that couldn't because of uh, COVID and the restrictions um, around that, that they were bleeding into day 15 and day 16. And so there are enough checks and balances in our criminal justice system to make sure people's rights are protected. But this little bit of flexibility is really needed to make sure we're protecting survivors. And I think it's a good balance to make sure you're taking care of everybody instead of excluding people. And now, unfortunately, with a hard and fast 14 day, we will be in a scenario where a few uh, survivors may not get um, the access to uh, protection that they need. And by that, you mean they will have to refile or maybe feel that it is too much of a difficulty to refile 
and lose out on getting this order in the first place, correct? Exactly. That's exactly it. How long does this proclamation extend to? What's the end date? So the hope really is uh, if we, uh, it, we should still be in lockdown. Hopefully we will be in phase two. Um, the hope is then to then extend the proclamation again. And given that the Republicans agreed to the first extension, the hope is that the second time it'll be uh, simple enough to just sign off on it. And um, I'm, the 14 day, however, is not going to be implemented, any kind of uh, variance on that. What do you mean? So I think the 14 days is now um, steadfast. That's in the statute. Republicans didn't agree to any flexibility around that. So that is the way it's going to continue moving forward. Why do you think this 14 is such, um, is such an immovable barrier for them? Why is this the hill they've chosen to die on? You know, I cannot speak for the Republicans and I have no idea why 14 and not 16. Um, it, it does not make sense to me that there isn't any flexibility around here, especially because we have seen in the last three months that the system is working, that people are getting the hearings, that both the petitioner and the respondent's rights are being protected. So they, I cannot think of any logical or practical reason as to why uh, they wouldn't have agreed to extending the entire proclamation in the first place. When they, this issue first came up, I figured that once the prosecutors and law enforcement explained the situation and the state Supreme Court explained the situation, that they would agree to it. So the fact that they refused to extend it completely caught me off guard. Because how often do you have the state Supreme Court, law enforcement officers, prosecutors, and victim advocates all on the same page on something. So I do have to say I was, um, I am still very confused that this is what they decided to uh, really uh, fight. Yeah, I'm flabbergasted. I've actually never heard of all those groups on the same page before. You're right, that's, um, that's wacky, weird. For those of us who have seen this proclamation struck down before and are eager to see it continue to be passed, would you recommend calling lawmakers before this June 15th deadline? Let them know early on their support for this. Absolutely. Uh, we saw what hearing from people uh, can do, that advocates and people can really make a difference. And absolutely, come June 12th, I would say, start calling, start emailing, and let people know that this is something that has to continue. You know, this is how we see democracy in action. So thank you to everyone out there who took the time to email, to call, and uh, send in your support for the extension of these proclamations. But not call you because you are already in support, so, and you're very busy. <laughs> So we should probably leave you alone to do your job. Well, yes, I always love hearing from people, but I think it's important to call those individuals who um, need to hear that these are things that are helping people. And I will definitely, at the end of the show, um, have a list of information for people so it's easy for them just to, to reach out. Is there anything else you'd like to add at this time? You know, I would just uh, like people to really see this process uh, as, a, as one that hopefully gives them hope and lets them know that they have agency, that they do have the ability to make change. Because when people get activated, we do see change happening. 
And uh, to me, if the community hadn't come up to really uh, make those phone calls and those emails, we wouldn't be where we are today. So uh, please take this opportunity to realize that your voice matters, that what you do is important, and you really, each and every one of you has the ability to make change. So keep doing it. Thank you so much. And come June 12th, I am marking my calendar and I will let everyone know that we just have a mass wave of phone calls and emails and let it be known that this needs to be extended for the duration of quarantine and hopefully throughout the rest of just our natural lives because it's done wonderful things for survivors. So thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. This was an incredible story to experience. We actually got an ending to it and a happy ending. This proclamation meant to help survivors during this emergency is now going to continue. I mean, in mostly, besides from some of the issues we heard about, but still, it got extended again. And then there's the fact that so many people stepped up and let it be known that we care about these issues and that was enough to turn the tides. It's pretty rare that you see an example where you stand up, you use your voice, shout to the rooftops and change happens this quickly or happens at all. And in this case, we saw it. So thanks guys. And I'll admit, I was one of the people who was calling Senator Mark Schillinger's office. I emailed his attorney. I talked to so many people from his side and let him know what I thought of it. I also, I should mention, asked them if they wanted to appear on the podcast and discuss their side of the story. And so far, I haven't heard back. All I got was some bullet points that were released in the press that we talked about earlier. But... If anyone out there is related in any capacity to Senator Mark Schillinger or anyone who had opposition to Proclamation 45 and you want to come on the podcast and talk about your views, please do. We'd love to have you. But although this time we had a happy ending, we have to be careful. As Senator Dingra said, this proclamation will expire in June, June 15th to be exact. And... Even though it feels like we fought long and fought hard and scrapped to the nail to get these protections extended and we shouldn't have to do it again, we're gonna have to do it again. It's kind of the reality if you're a survivor interacting and looking for help from the legal system. But you're not gonna be alone. Starting June 12th, I will be releasing a series of videos with information, numbers you can call, and also an outline. So maybe what you can say if you're a little unsure or a little shy. We're going to fight together to make sure that survivors will continue to receive protections that they need during a time when they need it more than ever. Mark your calendars, June 12th. We're going to get it done. In the meantime, I want to hear your points of view. What do you think of Proclamation 45? Was it reasonable? Should that have been extended? Maybe you don't think it should have been. Maybe you take issue with these ex parte protection orders. Whatever your thoughts are, please let me know. I want to hear from you. 
We're only going to get better at what we do. We're only going to learn and grow if we encourage healthy and civil discussion. And to do that, you can email us at thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at The Diva Discussion. We all have stories, and they deserve to be heard. See you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.